Hi there. Welcome back to Health Bite, our podcast dedicated to providing you with small, actionable bites towards better mental, physical, and emotional well being. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian. Welcome back. Well, our wellness culture is filled with gimmicks, tricks, and fake news. Our strategies are all about quick fixes and false promises using fear based tactics filled with judgment and shame. My name is Dr. Adrian Udim. I am a board certified internist, specialist in obesity medicine, and a physician nutrition specialist. And I'm here to give the wellness culture a different spin. I am committed to empowering you with evidence-based yet compassionate health bites to help you achieve greater physical, mental, and emotional well-being. Here, you can expect expert, no-nonsense guidance in the areas of nutrition, fitness, habit change, and mindset that I use with my patients and clients in my medical practice each and every day, and I promise to leave you feeling motivated, empowered, and inspired. So let's get started. Well, this week, or uh, last week rather, was... International Women's Day. This month is International Women's Month, or rather Women's Month. I don't know. But we are talking about women. We are dedicating this episode to a uniquely women's issue, which is menopause and perimenopause, an issue that I frequently have patients consulting me on particularly in the area of weight gain, health, and prevention. So let's first start with menopause and how it is defined. So menopause is actually a clinical diagnosis, which means that while we can get laboratory tests, checking hormones, it really is a diagnosis of the clinical experience of the patient or the woman. And it is defined by an absence of menses or periods by 12 months. So if someone is having intermittent menses, um, meaning spotty, on, off, and skipping, that's not quite menopause yet. Rather, a true absence of periods for a full year, for a full 12 months, will give you the diagnosis of menopause will put you officially into the place of menopause. However, we know that perimenopause, so that time before it, and the time during which symptoms start can begin as long as 10 years before actual menopause. So if you are like the average female, you can expect to go into menopause in your late 40s, but believe it or not, can start to experience some of the symptoms of menopause in your late 30s and early 40s. And these symptoms can include anything from hot flashes, mood changes or mood swings, vaginal atrophy and pain during sexual intercourse, changes in your relationship to certain foods, and your experience with alcohol. Women in menopause tend to get less tolerant of alcohol. Many will complain of headaches, 
with alcohol, whereas prior they were not having headaches or suffering any difficulties. And then of course, a change in body composition, a change in fat distribution and weight gain. All can begin long before you actually go into that full year of menopause or full year of missing periods, which is defined again as menopause. So let's talk about the most pressing issue uh, in mind, which for many is weight gain. Lots of patients come in and share with me that they are starting to gain weight despite not having made any changes to their diet or lifestyle. So patients will tell me they are eating what they used to eat. They are exercising the same way they always have, and yet they are gaining weight. Another common problem and complaint is where the weight or excess weight is being distributed. So women will start to universally report that whereas maybe all their life, they used to carry their excess weight in their hips or in their buttocks or in their thighs, everybody's a little bit different, that now they're starting to carry it more in their midsection. And there's a reason for that. So why is all this happening? Well, first of all, let's understand a little bit about what goes on in menopause. And we do have a change or fluctuation in our hormone levels. Most notably, there is a decline in estrogen and therefore a relative increase in the amount of testosterone in the body. So remember that testosterone is a male, typically a male hormone. However, women have circulating levels of testosterone in their bodies as well. And when the estrogen levels begin to fall, that relative amount of testosterone to estrogen, that ratio shifts in a way in which we start to experience testosterone a little bit more. What does that mean in terms of body composition? Well, if you notice, uh, most men tend to carry their weight in their midsection. So men who drink beer or not may have beer bellies and carry that weight in their abdomen, in their visceral area, which is that mid area of the belly. So what happens to women when they start to enter perimenopause and menopause is because of that shift in estrogen and the relative increase in testosterone, women start to notice excess weight or fat deposition in their midsection. And so a lot of times they will start to develop this mid abdominal bulge or muffin top that they never experienced prior to perimenopause and menopause. Another thing that happens is that body composition starts to shift. And in fact, the loss of muscle mass or change in muscle mass can start as early as the mid to late 30s in women. So women can actually start to lose muscle in their mid to late 30s. And so what does that mean? It means that the relative amount of fat in their body increases because it is replacing that lost muscle. That has a negative impact on our metabolism because muscle, as you know, burns more calories than fat. It is more metabolically active than fat is. And so if we start to experience this change in body composition in which there's a relative increase in the amount of fat, then our metabolic rate 
or the amount of calories that we burn just by living starts to drop. And so now you can start to understand why women begin to experience weight gain during perimenopause and menopause, even if they have made no change to their diet and lifestyle. Because as that body composition changes, as that metabolic rate drops, then the same activity and diet is not going to maintain our weight, but will result in weight gain. And so something needs to change. So what can we do about this? It is a physiologic change, but it's not insurmountable. It is not preventable. So what can we do? Number one, start moving your body and preferably start this way before perimenopause or menopause even takes hold, but it's never too late. So don't worry, but start moving your body. We know that with exercise, we can minimize or mitigate, which means prevent that loss of muscle from happening. And I want you to cross train. So engage in all types of physical activity, cardiovascular exercise in which we raise the heart rate and help uh, burn fat, strength training where you're, you're actually working to preserve and build muscle, um, core exercises like Pilates, yoga, stretching to build those smaller core muscles in the mid-abdomen or midsection, as well as the back, the groin and upper thighs. All of these exercises will help to preserve your muscle mass. And keep in mind that while we have categories, these categories overlap. So certainly you can raise your heart rate through a strength training activity. And so you are doing some cardio there. Likewise, when you're engaging in cardiovascular exercise, like running, for example, swimming, for example, you are also using body weight. And so that is some degree of strength training. So there is some overlap, but the more varied your exercise, the more you are keeping your body on its toes, essentially, you prevent the body from getting too comfortable, too accustomed to any particular exercise, which means that the calorie and fat burning effect of the exercise remains high where you want it to be. What else can we do? So protein or amino acids, which make up protein are the building blocks of muscle. And what I find almost universally in the patients who come to see me is that they are consuming far, far less the amount of protein that is necessary for their bodies. Note that protein requirements actually go up as we get older. And yet the RDA recommends about 40 grams of protein for women per day. This is too low. It is inadequate, particularly if people are trying to maintain or lose weight that amount is actually closer to 70 to 100 grams of protein, depending on your weight per day. So if we're sticking to that minimum RDA of 40 grams, then you will lose muscle, particularly if you're trying to lose weight. So get adequate protein. And what I recommend is shooting for at least 20 grams of protein per meal. So don't reserve it for just one meal, 
but spread it throughout the day. Of course, animal protein is going to be the easiest access to amino acids and protein. Three ounces of chicken will give you uh, 27 grams, approximately three ounces of fish, 21 grams, red meat, which I don't recommend in large quantities, 30 grams. An egg is seven grams of protein. Egg white is four grams uh, per egg, per egg white. What else? Garbanzo beans. So beans are a great source of plant-based proteins. 19 grams per serving, which is excellent. Tofu, lentils, soybeans, grains. These are all good sources of plant-based protein. And of course your vegetables, while they have very small amount of protein, if you're eating it in abundance, you are getting in total, you are adding to your overall protein intake. So increase your protein. The goal is at least 20 grams per meal. And if you can't get it through food, get it through high quality supplements. Protein shakes and protein bars can be a great adjunct, particularly if you are more plant-based in getting that protein in. A word of caution though is please know your source, know where you're getting your protein. Certain protein powders over the counter can be or have been adulterated. There was a mess about six months to a year ago where Consumer Reports found lead in protein powders as well as in baby formula, which is god awful, but unfortunately it happens. And in terms of your bars, be wary as well, because many protein bars out there are just glorified chocolate bars. They are not actually providing you the high amount of protein you need without the excess calories. If you're interested or curious in learning about Dell Nutrition, the line of protein, high quality protein bars and protein powders that I've created, you can check it out on the website, dellnutrition.com. So again, protein, consume 20 grams plus per meal and start exercising. And in that way, we can prevent some of the physiologic changes that are happening with menopause in terms of changing body composition, the inevitable drop in metabolic rate, as well as the unfortunate consequence of weight gain. But what else is happening during menopause? So yes, there are these physiologic changes that are contributing, but what else is happening at this time? As women enter their 40s or 50s, there's a lot of transition happening. Many of us are starting to become empty nesters. Uh, children are growing up, they're heading into their teenage years where they don't need their moms as much. Some of them are going to college and starting to move away. And so there's a shift in responsibility. And it's difficult for a lot of women, particularly if they have dedicated their entire lives to the care of their children, as many do to deal with that shift. It also requires a shift or entails a shift in our relationships with our partners. As children need us less and we find more time for ourselves, we start to look at our partners in a different way. What may have happened over the last several years? How much time and space did the children take and how much is left for 
for the partner that we started out with. Perhaps there's a change in partner status as well. Maybe there is a divorce or a, a shift there. And so there is this opportunity to reacquaint ourselves with our partners, if that is the case. And then most importantly, an opportunity to reacquaint ourselves with ourselves. So again, as there is change happening, shifting relationships in the household, we may start to find, wow, we have neglected ourselves. We have put so much time towards our children or our partners or our work, or maybe now we are shifting into a caretaker role because our parents are starting to age and require more of us. And so it really requires a digging deep inside introspection to reacquaint with ourselves and try and assess what is happening. Maybe there is a weight gain that is emotional in nature, spiritual in nature. And while the physiologic things are happening, we can't ignore the emotional changes, the spiritual changes. And so it takes time to care for ourselves and reacquaint with ourselves. So I gave you some tips in terms of uh, practical strategies for our physiology, but what can you do for your emotional and mental well-being? It's about taking time for ourselves, taking time for self-care. And what does that mean? Because self-care sometimes can get muddied in terms of its definition. Some of us think of manicures and massages as self-care. And yes, those things are necessary and lovely. But self-care is a little bit more. And it's actually work to set aside time for ourselves for movement, like we discussed. Movement and exercise is not only offering a physical benefit, but also an emotional, a spiritual benefit to our well-being. Take time for meditation. There is so much data on the benefits of meditation in terms of mental and emotional well-being. Maybe that feels like too much of a bite. Maybe it's just taking some time and space for a breathing exercise or any kind of introspective practice in which we slow down and take care. These are often creative practices. Journaling is an excellent one. As I have mentioned on this podcast, it is something that I have done since I was six years old and do to this very day, every day. Coloring is another introspective practice. There's so many great adult coloring books right now. And actually they've shown that coloring that act of coloring is a soothing practice that reduces sympathetic tone and our sympathetic nervous system. Reading, being outdoors, these are all introspective practices that we can engage in. So take some time, take some time for yourself, explore these various practices and see what resonates, what serves you, and then make time for it. Be non-negotiable about creating that time and space for yourself. So what are some other 
considerations as women enter perimenopause and menopause? Well, one is heart health. What is unknown to many is that heart disease is not only the number one cause of morbidity and mortality, so disease and death in men, it is actually the number one cause of death in women as well. And we don't know this fact. As women, we worry about breast cancer, for example, that's our number one concern. And yes, it is an important consideration to get mammograms and do our self breast exams and be on top of that. But heart health is equally, if not more important. And there are risk factors for heart disease that are common to both men and women, but there are risk factors that are unique to women. For example, women who have had a history of polycystic ovaries or polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a syndrome, irregular menses, hyperandrogenemia, which means an elevation or an abnormal elevation of male hormones resulting in acne, hair loss, abdominal obesity at a younger age, those women are at high risk for heart disease. Also, any female who had gestational diabetes, which means temporarily having the diagnosis of diabetes while pregnant, even if it resolved post-delivery, that is a unique risk factor for heart disease, as is preeclampsia, which is a elevation, sometimes life-threatening elevation of blood pressure in women while pregnant, which can require emergent delivery of the baby is also a risk factor. So I tell you these risk factors not to scare you, but to empower you. Because in fact, there are things that we can do for prevention in terms of heart disease. And in fact, heart disease is very uniquely positioned in terms of preventive health. Uh, but first, some other risk factors. So we talked about the ones unique to um, women. But of course, there are the typical risk factors, which include smoking uh, or a prior history of smoking, hypertension or high blood pressure, high cholesterol. These are all known risk factors, uh, excess weight or obesity, abdominal obesity. And so many of you have heard this term of visceral fat. We talked about it a little bit earlier on. Men tend to have more visceral fat than women until menopause. And, and then we kind of level the playing field. But visceral fat is not only maybe unwanted in terms of the aesthetics, but it's unwanted, more importantly, in terms of its health risk. We know that that fat that is deposited in the midsection, that visceral fat is more metabolically active than subcutaneous fat. So what does that mean? That means that the fat in the viscera actually is secreting or releasing hormones that make us at greater risk or put us at greater risk for metabolic syndrome, prediabetes and diabetes, high blood pressure, low HDL, which is a risk factor, as well as heart disease. And so if you um, have had that body habitus or the body type in which you accumulated more belly fat than fat in the hips or around the arms, then that in and of itself could be a risk factor too. But again, um, 
we can prevent heart disease. Heart disease has become very preventable due to lifestyle changes as well as medications. So let's talk lifestyle first. Diet. Diet is very important in terms of prevention of heart disease. And probably the most widely studied diet on the planet is the Mediterranean diet, which is a dietary pattern most common in the countries that surround the Mediterranean Sea, including France, Italy, Spain. The Mediterranean style diet consists, believe it or not, of a lot of carbs, but good carbs, good carbs like whole grains, whole grain cereals and breads, grains in general, legumes like lentils, soybeans, peas, beans, lots of beans, which are great source of not only are they carbohydrates, but great source of protein, as we discussed. The Mediterranean diet is also big, of course, on fruits and vegetables, does include dairy, we vilify dairy in this country, but dairy is actually not a bad nutrient. So eggs, lower fat cheeses, in moderation, of course, yogurt, Cottage cheese is a great source of dairy. The Mediterranean diet does also include animal proteins, but to a lesser degree, poultry, and then very small amounts of red meat and not a lot of processed food. So the Mediterranean style diet is excellent for heart health. It also employs good fats like avocados, nuts, seeds, and their oils, including olive oil. Another aspect of diet in terms of prevention is managing salt intake or sodium. Sodium is a significant risk factor for high blood pressure or hypertension, and therefore a significant risk factor for stroke, particularly as we get older. So starting to look at how much salt we're using, perhaps not including salt or as much salt while we cook, or not having table salt available at the table when we're eating, being really mindful of packaged and processed foods, all packaged foods will have sodium as a preservative. This includes your beans uh, and your vegetables. So if you're getting your beans from a can, make sure you wash them well so that you get rid of that excess sodium. And then finally, restaurants. Restaurant food is wildly notorious for its sodium. And in fact, there was a article published in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association several years ago, that showed that the average restaurant meal contained over 2000 milligrams of sodium. Now, mind you, this is more than what the American Heart Association recommends in an entire day. And when we eat out, we can get that in a single meal. So be mindful of sodium intake. Limit your addition of sodium when you cook. Limit canned and processed foods and limit your food at restaurants. And um, of course, ordering in is the same thing. So diet is important. Exercise is really important. We know that exercise independent of weight loss helps with cardiometabolic risk factors. It will bring down blood sugar in pre-diabetic and diabetic individuals. Routine exercise will bring down both systolic and diastolic, both the top and lower number in terms of blood pressure. Routine exercise will improve cholesterol uh, in our blood and blood fats. So it improves dyslipidemia. Again, 
all of this is independent of weight loss. So we often will equate exercises benefits to a weight loss benefit. And as we know, exercise is just one piece of the weight loss equation. The food that we eat and the diet we consume is much more important in terms of whether or not we're able to lose weight. But unfortunately, people use that as a way or as an excuse to stop exercising. Oh, I haven't lost weight and therefore it's not valuable to exercise. I'm going to quit. But these benefits of exercise are independent, sorry, independent of weight loss, which means that even if you don't lose an ounce, you will benefit. So ladies, start moving your bodies. And then in addition to diet, exercise, meditation, meditation actually has been shown to reduce inflammation in the body. Uh, And by the way, inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, or other inflammatory bowel diseases, lupus, I failed to mention that these are also unique risk factors for heart disease because they are pro-inflammatory states or higher inflammation states. And so meditation is another form in helping bring down that. In fact, there was a study that showed individuals who meditated regularly had a reduction in their CRP, which is a pro-inflammatory molecule that we test for in the blood. Individuals had lower CRP levels in their blood with meditation. Fascinating data. And then finally, there's a role for medications or for pharmacotherapy. So if if you do have high cholesterol, whether it's related, weight related or genetic, genetics plays a huge role in hyperlipidemia, which means that you could be exercising, you could be eating the best Mediterranean diet. But if your genetics have high cholesterol, then then you will have high cholesterol despite your best attempts. And if it's high enough, then that is a place in which we should start thinking about the statins, which are evidence-based medications that have been shown to reduce the risk of heart disease. So if you do have high cholesterol, then speak with your cardiologist, speak with your internist about how to manage that. Again, heart health is very important. What about other considerations? Well, bone density becomes really important in perimenopause and menopause. And there are ways that we can preserve our bone density and prevent bone loss as well. The first is through adequate calcium and vitamin D consumption. So we think of supplementation and yes, calcium supplements are out there and can be used, but think about dietary ways in which you can get adequate calcium. Of course, dairy products like milk, yogurt, cottage cheese and other cheeses can have calcium, but vegetables, other nutrients can have calcium as well. So you may be surprised to hear that a cup of broccoli gives you as much calcium as a cup of milk. Look it up and see other sources of calcium that you may enjoy and incorporate that into your diet. Vitamin D is a little bit trickier. So yes, there are natural ways of getting vitamin D. We get vitamin D from the sunlight. So spending time outdoors and in nature is very important. We can also get vitamin D from fatty fish. It is fortified in certain dairy products like milk, but vitamin D is one of those things that 
despite our best nutritional efforts may require supplementation. And if you don't know how much you should get your vitamin D check levels checked annually, because the amount of supplementation will depend on your vitamin levels. There are some people that can get by with an over-the-counter vitamin D supplement of 1,000 to 2,000 international units or IUs per day. And some people, vitamin D levels are so low that they require prescription-grade vitamin D of 50,000 IUs per week. So get that checked out. But in addition to calcium and vitamin D supplementation, again, exercise. So we know that exercise causes changes in muscle and in bone density, both of which strengthen bone. So when you exercise, you are actually sending messages between muscle cells or myocytes called action potentials, and you're sending messages to the bone to cause bone formation. And so exercise is very important in preventing bone loss. And it's also important in terms of prevention of fractures. So as women and men get older, we are at higher risk for bone fractures, most importantly, hip fracture. And believe it or not, they have shown that as little as 10 calf raises per day. So a study showed that if individuals would do 10 calf raises a day, so go onto a step or your curb outside your home, and um, balance yourself on the front part of your foot on your toes and just do 10 calf raises that that has been shown to not only improve balance, but also prevent uh, fractures. So really powerful stuff we can do in terms of prevention by modifying our lifestyle. And then finally, preventive purposes, I wanna talk about brain health because this is something that has become very topical for us these days. We know that the incidence of cognitive decline and dementias, including Alzheimer's disease has increased over the years. Perhaps that's a function of our lifestyle, but it is something to consider. We are living longer and we are at higher risk for cognitive decline and dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. And when it comes to brain health, the, the um, idiom of use it or lose it really matters. So using our brains is actually a preventive strategy. Reading, uh, staying engaged, continuing learning, doing crossword puzzles, Wordle, perhaps, <laughs> maybe you're doing that, the great latest craze, doing something daily to engage your brain, to work your brain, to use your brain is a preventive strategy for Alzheimer's disease. So number one is use it or lose it. Number two, I know I'm repeating myself, but exercise, moving your body and being engaged in physical activity has been shown to reduce the incidence of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. Mediterranean style diet. So that diet that we talked about in terms of heart health is also important in brain health and has been shown to reduce cognitive decline and the incidence of dementia. So diet is very important. Along those lines is also alcohol consumption. I wrote on um, the Medium blog just this last week about a study that came out 
that showed that even one glass of alcohol or one serving of alcohol per night or per day rather is associated with a loss of gray and white matter in the brain. So fascinating and, and unfortunate data for those of us who like our wine, which shows that routine consumption of alcohol results in shrinkage of the brain. And this data is not necessarily new, but it is becoming more vocalized and has made me shift my personal habits around alcohol consumption. As physicians, we have long maybe advocated for alcohol use and talked about the benefits to heart health, but more and more we're learning about the downsides of routinely consuming alcohol. And this has made me really mindful of, of my own practices. And I encourage you to be mindful of yours as well. And then finally, sleep. Sleep is really important in preserving brain health. In fact, a study, again, a medical study, it showed that as little as several nights of sleep deprivation increased the amount of uh, amyloid proteins in the blood. And these are the proteins that are deposited in the brain and are culpable for Alzheimer's disease. We also know that, that routine sleep deprivation, longitudinal studies, has been linked to cognitive decline. So don't skimp on your sleep. This is not only an act of self-care, but also an act of prevention in terms of your brain health. I suggest seven to eight hours per night, but meet yourself where you're at, see where you are and start cleaning up your environment. Limit screen time, eliminate screens, phones, out of your uh, bedroom, uh, start to limit caffeine and alcohol, both of which interrupt sleep and start a bedtime routine or ritual, soothing practices like, again, coloring, reading, meditating, maybe it's a warm bath or shower to help prepare you mind and body for better sleep. And so that's it on our episode about menopause. I hope this has been helpful. If you are a guy listening to the, this episode out there, these tips apply to you as well. There is everything to be gained from making the lifestyle changes that we've discussed in this episode. So I hope that it was a value. If you love this episode, please like and subscribe and share it with somebody that you love. And come back to us next week where I will be here for you for yet another episode of Health Bite, giving you small, actionable bites towards better mental, emotional, and physical well-being. If you're interested in more, follow me on Instagram at Dr. Adrian Udeem. You can also find links to all of my offerings there, including additional blog posts, past episodes of Health Bite as well as my best-selling book, Hungry for More. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then.